boxed in, a hitchhiker, a seemingly trustworthy offer, a disembodied voice, and a box. This is the story of Colleen Stan, how she met the Hooker family and became entrapped in a wooden box. Echo, if you wouldn't mind just covering the trigger warnings, please. Of course not. Trigger warnings. This episode will discuss topics of kidnapping, S slavery, bondage, and the R word. Thank you for that. Of course, we understand if you can't hear these particular topics right now. And if that's not for you, then that's totally okay. And we totally understand and hope to see you next time. Your mental health always comes first, so please do take care of yourselves. In lieu of that, hello. Welcome back to another episode of The Shit Detectives. Today, we are deep diving into the case of Cameron Hooker and his victim, Colleen Stan. Last week, we covered the serial killer in the box, Robert Maudsley. Now, let's take a look at the case some refer to as the girl in a box. Echo, please could you introduce Colleen Stan? Colleen Stan was born in Ohio during December 1956. At the time of her kidnapping, she was a vibrant young woman looking forward to making her way in the world. She was raised in a middle-class family and was the youngest of five siblings and was described as being shy and introverted as a child. According to her own account, she was a religious person who felt a strong sense of duty to help others. Now, I'm gonna let you introduce our perp turtle. Thank you, Echo. Cameron Hooker, our perpetrator. Not very much is known about Cameron Hooker and his early life, except that he was born in California in 1953 and his family moved around frequently until around 1972 when he graduated and met the woman who would later become his wife, Janice, in 1973. Janice, when she met Hooker, was 15 years old and had spent most of her life being abused, making her very submissive to Hooker's needs, even when one time he nearly drowned her. Upon their wedding day, he informed Janice that she would become part of a menage a trois as he had planned to kidnap a young girl. It's uncertain at which point she managed to negotiate that he would not whip Janice and that she would be the only one that he had penetrative sex with, but after that was agreed, Janice became an accomplice. On to the crime. Over to you, Echo. The kidnapping. In May 1977, Colleen, who was 20 years old at this point, and an experienced hitchhiker, was attempting to hitchhike her way from Eugene in Oregon to a friend's home in North Carolina for a birthday party. She was picked up by Cameron Hooker. When speaking on this later, Colleen discussed the terrible irony that she had turned away two other rides before accepting hookers because he had his wife and his baby with him and that made her feel confident about climbing into the blue van. Along the way, they stopped at a gas station and Colleen went to use the bathroom. While using the bathroom, Colleen recalled that she could hear a voice that told her to run and jump out of the window to run away and never look back. Despite this, she returned to the car, where shortly after, a knife was held to her throat and she was locked in a headbox made of wood. It was designed to keep light, sound and fresh air out. 
After this, Hooker kept her imprisoned. Allegedly, he and his wife had formed an agreement that he could kidnap a young woman in order to live out his bondage fantasies. This agreement, however, stated that there was to be no penetrative intercourse, but this would come to change as time went on. On the first night of her imprisonment, Pauline said she was strung up by her hands, physically attacked and left suspended and blindfolded, while the pair had sex beneath her. Would you mind covering what Colleen has said about her imprisonment, Turtle? Of course not. When describing her imprisonment, Colleen stated that she was tortured and kept locked in a box for 23 hours a day, up until she was given a contract and forced to sign herself into slavery in January 1978. Colleen came to learn that she wasn't his first victim. She found a picture of Marie Elizabeth Spanik, whose body has never been found. After she had signed the contract, Cameron kept referring to the company, a large powerful organisation who would hurt her family if she tried to escape. He started calling her Kay, as that was her slave name, and she could only address him as Master, and only speak if given permission. He is described as wanting her to be like a female character from a French erotic novel entitled The Story of O and soon began R-wording her orally, because Vaginal would have been against what he and his wife had agreed. Instead, opting to use foreign objects to force penetration both vaginally and anally. In 1978, the hookers moved to a mobile home in Red Bluff and took Colleen with them. Here, they kept her under a waterbed and Janice, Cameron's wife, gave birth to a second child on the bed above Colleen. In spite of all this, Colleen kept her faith in God and prayed that she would be allowed an opportunity to escape. In this time, her greatest fear was the company, which Cameron was still reinforcing daily, and Colleen wanted to avoid the wrath of Cameron and the company, so tried to comply with his every command, which led to her receiving permission to go out for a walk or a jog, work in the yard, care for the children, and build accommodations so that he could take on more slaves. The fear that she felt about the company was preventing her from seeking help despite many unlocked doors, neighbours and telephones. In 1981 she was even allowed to go visit her family but told them nothing of her, of her captivity for fear of the fallout. Handing it back to you Echo. Her family believed her to be in a cult as she had homemade clothes, no money and had no communication with them for a number of years. They didn't want her to stay away again, so they offered support rather than pressure so she wouldn't stay away forever. On her second visit, Colleen returned with Cameron, posing as her boyfriend, and they posed for a photograph. After this, Cameron feared that Colleen had received too many freedoms from him and reverted to locking her in a box under the waterbed 23 hours a day for the next three years. In 1983, Cameron allowed Colleen to come back out of the box and was also permitted to get a job. Colleen said that Hooker had plans of taking her on as his second wife. This greatly upset Janice, who testified that she had been tortured, brainwashed and called a whore over the years. She survived the relationship with a great deal of denial and compartmentalization. 
1984, Janice told Colleen that while the company existed, Cameron had nothing to do with them. With this knowledge, Colleen went and caught a bus home, but not before calling Hooker and informing him that she was leaving. She described his reaction as bursting into tears. In the following months, she continued to call Cameron, allegedly at the request of Janice, to allow him to have the opportunity to change. However, three months later, Janice reported him to the police. When doing so, she took the picture of Marie, who had been missing since January 1976, as well as the abduction of Colleen. November 7th, 1984, Al Shamblin, the chief of police at Red Bluff Police Department, responded to a call from the Church of Nazareth. He said that the first thing he saw when he got to the church was the pastor and a woman called Janice Hooker, who was extremely emotional. She claimed that in 1976, her husband had killed a girl and stated that she was afraid to come forward due to her fear of her husband, but was also experiencing an overwhelming sense of guilt. Janice was granted immunity for her cooperation with police. Stockholm Syndrome it is said that this is one of the infamous cases of Stockholm Syndrome and as always we do like to explore a bit further and educate on topics covered in these cases. Today Turtle's going to info dump on Stockholm Syndrome. So have fun and take it away. Stockholm Syndrome describes the psychological condition of a victim who identifies with and empathises with their captor or abuser and their goals. Stockholm Syndrome is rare. According to one FBI study, the condition occurs in about 8% of hostage victims. It is a psychological response wherein a captive begins to identify closely with his or her captors, as well as their agenda and demands, leading to them having a positive response to them. This could be coming to view them as a family member or potentially going as far as feeling as if they are in love with them. The name originates from a bank robbery in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973 where four people were held hostage by bank robbers for six days. When they were rescued, the hostages attempted to protect the perpetrators with whom they had an amicable relationship. The case in which it is named after also proves that it only takes a few days for this bond to cement, proving that early on the victim's desire to survive trumps the urge to hate the person who created the situation. Initially, Stockholm Syndrome was identified in a seemingly contradictory relationship between a hostage and their captor. However, it has also been documented in harmful relationships that involve domestic violence, incest, child abuse, court membership, sports coaching and war imprisonment. It's not completely understood why Stockholm Syndrome happens. Some researchers suggest that it's a survival mechanism in which further harm is mitigated by the victim showing compliance and gratitude Another theory states that a victim's gratitude is established after their abuser or captor perpetrates fear without actually harming the victim. The survival instinct is at the heart of Stockholm Syndrome. Victims live in enforced dependence and interpret rare or small acts of kindness in the, mid in the midst of horrible conditions as good treatment. They often become hypervigilant to the needs and demands of their captors, making psychological links between the captor's happiness and their own. Indeed, the syndrome is marked not only by a positive bond between captive and captor, but also a negative attitude on behalf of the captive, 
towards the authorities who threaten the captor-captive relationship. The negative attitude is especially powerful when the hostage is of no use to the captors except as leverage against a third party, as has often been the case with political hostages. Thank you for that, Turtle. It was really interesting. Now let's look at the aftermath. Would you mind? So after Janice reported him, authorities tried to find the remains of Marie, but were unsuccessful, so no murder charges were brought against him. However, with Janice acting as the star witness in exchange for full immunity in 1985, it meant that Cameron Hooker was sentenced to serve 104 years in prison, with his possibility of parole not being available until 2023. However, the elderly parole programme helped him move this date forward to 2015, where he was denied and instructed that he could not try again until 2030. That was until the pandemic, when Colleen received a chilling phone call that said that they were making plans to consider him for bail once again in 2021. Instead, they evaluated whether he would class as a sexually violent predator. Colleen tried to return to normal life and move on, but she had a string of failed marriages and a troubled child who was now in jail. She also volunteered at Reading Women's Refuge Centre. Janice returned to her maiden name and is now a mental health professional. Janice and Colleen have both remained in California, but have no contact with one another. After her ordeal, it is important to state that Colleen Stan, who has survived seven years of torture and captivity at the hands of her abductors, has since moved on with her life. After her escape on August 10th, 1984, Stan and her family celebrated with a party at the beach in 2021. She has written a book about her experiences called The Simple Gifts of Life, which was published in 2009. I think the next part about this case really did spark your interest, didn't it, Echo? I found it quite fascinating, in all honesty, this next part, and that is the haunting of Marie Elizabeth Spanake. So, if you want Mind Turtle giving us some background. When Janice went to the police to report her husband, she also alleged that on the 31st of January 1976, Cameron Hooker kidnapped and murdered Marie Elizabeth Spanake. Janice's reasoning to come forward was that she was afraid of Cameron and also Janice had built up a lot of guilt from what had occurred over the years at different times. Shamlin said in a documentary, Unsolved Mysteries. Janice claimed that on the 31st of January 1976, she was driving with her husband when they offered Spanake a lift in their car. She claimed that Cameron stopped Spanake from leaving the car and put a headbox on her to prevent her from being heard. In her statement, she alleged that her husband began torturing Spanake and allegedly tried to cut her vocal cords to prevent her from screaming, but stopped after she began bleeding heavily. He took Spanake down to the basement where Janice reportedly found her hanging from the ceiling with a noose around her neck and a pillowcase over her head. The couple later allegedly drove Spanake's body near Laston Volcanic National Park and buried it in a shallow grave. According to police reports, it was on the 31st of January 1976 that Marie went missing and according to Al Shamlin, the retired chief police at Red Bluff Police Department, her missing persons report detailed that she had visited a flea market with her boyfriend but decided to walk home after they got into an argument. Marie Elizabeth Spanake was born on June 20th, 1956 and was 19 years old when she moved from Cleveland, Ohio to Chico, California to be with her fiancé, John Baruth. For about a month, she lived in peaceful existence in her new town 
Spanek found work as a camera store model and settled in the apartment she shared with Baruth. Two days after the fight between Spanek and Baruth, which led her to walking home furious while unfamiliar with the town, when Spanek still hadn't shown up at their apartment, Baruth filed a missing persons report. Though they'd had a fight, he told police that he was worried because his fiance hadn't taken any of her belongings, including her clothing, her suitcase, or even her toothbrush. Police briefly considered Baruth as suspect in his fiancé's disappearance. It was reported that one person told the police that Spanek had wanted out of the relationship and Spanek's mother said that Baruth had been into drugs. However, Baruth denied hurting her and was cleared as a suspect after he passed the polygraph test. Spanek is alleged by his former wife to have been abducted and killed by Cameron Hooker, who in 1985 was sentenced to 104 years in prison for kidnapping and raping Californian woman Colleen Stam. It was in 1977 that the missing persons case of Marie Elizabeth Spanek went cold and 24 years later, her apartment had new tenants. On to the actual haunting, Echo. So I find this really fascinating. And here we go. It was on the eighth episode of Unsolved Mysteries, which featured the story when Jodie Foster claimed that in 2000, she moved into an apartment where Marie who went by Marlies, once resided. Shortly after moving in, Jodie's daughter started speaking to an imaginary friend that she called My Liz. And Jodie began to experience bizarre reoccurring dreams with specific information in them that implied the location of Marlies' burial site. She supplied this information to the police, but at the time wasn't allowed to know much more information about the case. Years later, she would come to learn that the information she provided closely matched the information provided by Janice to police. Not only this, but later, her daughter would identify the ghost from a picture as Malise. It's reported that the apartment was a rather eerie place, with a strange smell and an overall lack of peacefulness. Jodie has claimed that she felt a sense of impending doom the minute she moved into that apartment. Like, she was constantly expecting something to go wrong. The longer they stayed in apartment 14, the more strange things occurred. Foster reported that things would move of their own accord, such as cupboard doors opening and closing on their own, and Hannah's toys seemed to take a life of their own. One night, they came home to see the phone off the hook and arranged as a noose on one of Hannah's toys. Some of the reported happenings are as follows. Hannah's pink shoes, which were usually kept by the door, kept reappearing in the middle of the bed day after day, though it doesn't specify whose bed it could have been Hannah's bed, it could have been Jodie's bed. I couldn't find out which bed it kept ending upon. Jodie began experiencing strange dreams about a girl walking down the street when she stopped by a couple in a car. The couple asks if she wants a ride. She also has dreams about a dungeon, which also include the same girl and couple. And it's here that the couple are doing, as she puts it, creepy sexual things to the girl. Hannah said hi to a girl in her room 
that she referred to as My Liz. She supposedly did a drawing of this girl in real time, depicting her in a white shirt. The landline, which was usually hooked up to the wall, was found by the back bedroom. Upon returning from a night out, Hannah's toys were piled up with Ernie from Sesame Street on top with a shoestring noose around his neck. On February 2000, one February 2009, Jodie woke up in the middle of the night to white static on the television, the kitchen cupboards flapping open, the oven burners on, and Ernie repeating, I feel great, which continued after she took the batteries out of Ernie. Her and Hannah report Ernie still saying, I feel great. The lights then flickered on and off throughout the apartment. At that point, Jodie went to her next door neighbour, who was the manager of the apartment complex. The manager came over with her poodle, and the poodle began barking. The lamp cords started to swing, and they all hurried the hell out of there. While Foster reported the strange happenings to police, they were unable to help. She spoke to her neighbours, who revealed that a previous occupant at the apartment had gone missing. With this information, Foster came to believe that the dream she was having about the girl with the strange couple was actually the previous occupant who was hoping to be found. Thank you for that, Turtle. As said earlier, it was claimed by Janice that Cameron Hooker had kidnapped and murdered Malise. Foster and her daughter moved out of the apartment and following this, it's reported that Foster got some reprieve from the apparent spirit. However, the dreams that had plagued Foster did eventually return, which led her to going to the police once she became aware of Spanek's disappearance. It's claimed that Foster met with a detective in a coffee shop where she shared the information she had seen in the dream, which included the same couple, which was likely to be the hookers. The numbers 35.76 and 17 and the letter A. It's believed this led them to speak to Janice once more, who agreed to continue helping them. However, Spanake's body is yet to be found. Spanake's sister, Martha, is still waiting for answers about what happened to her sister. And the case remains open for the time being. It is said that Foster was told in 2021 that her dreams had been helpful to the case. Foster has very little doubt that the ghost haunting her apartment belonged to Spanake with Martha revealing that her sister was often referred to as Maliz. A conjoining of her first and middle names. The girl seen by Foster's daughter, Hannah, was only ever referred to as Maliz. Foster and her daughter only lived in that apartment for three months. But let's hear it from Jodie's own words in an interview for KHSL-TV from 2008. It wasn't just me that experienced it, it was my child and my friends and people would say, oh my god, what is wrong in this apartment? I always would feel like coldness and then it would go away. 
Foster thought she was going crazy, but couldn't pin down why all these strange things kept happening. She finally talked to a neighbor who had lived there for years. Apparently she had been murdered, and she lived in that apartment that I lived in. And for the longest time, like, people would move in and move out. I mean, it would be, like, maybe for, like, a month or two. Now on to our thoughts and opinions. And I think since psychology is your thing, Turtle, it would probably be best that you started this segment. Okie dokie then, Echo. It wasn't until I started reading up about this case that I recalled this case uh, from my forensic psychology unit at university. They made an argument that Colleen's behaviour left room for the debate of whether or not she had Stockholm Syndrome. However, I don't think that's the case. As I just did a big info jump, we're not going to cover what Stockholm Syndrome is. But I think that Colleen may have been heading towards that direction because she just shows signs that maybe would have been developed into it. My opinion, however, is that her behaviour is from the result of being groomed into submission which is um, where the abductors use the behaviour to reinforce and encouragement of the behaviour that they want and the looming threat of an invisible threat to their victim or victim's family. I think we all remember the abducted in plain sight documentary in, in Netflix where the perpetrator claimed that aliens would take the victim's sister if she didn't comply. If you recall, there was the looming company that was frequently mentioned to Colleen. I know that people say the fact that Colleen called him at Janice's request is very indicative of Stockholm Syndrome. But remember, allegedly Janice had asked her to do that. And Janice had said the company existed, just that Hooker didn't actually communicate with them. And there's nothing to say that Janice didn't believe the company was real. She only refuted Cameron's abilities to communicate with them. I don't know if it was an intentional move, but Janice seems to have almost left the company as a hanging threat by not refuting its existence. Just refuting that Cameron can't get hold of them. She's almost left it open-ended. So maybe to, at the time, it sounded like if Colleen were to want to report it, Janice could get hold of the company and the usual threat could occur. That's, that's my thoughts on that situation. How about you, Echo? Well, psychology is definitely more your thing, um, but I have found it very interesting just listening to what you've had to say about it. And I do think there's quite a few fascinating points that you've brought up that I think I'm going to do a bit of extra reading on. Um, what gets me about this case is the paranormal aspect um, with Malise. And it's actually through that that I came to hear about this case because I went through a obsession with the show Paranormal Witness and then saw it on the show Unsolved Mysteries. So I find it very fascinating. Um, I do recall while researching into the haunting aspect, seeing, but then I couldn't refine the source. Um, someone had written about how it was a money grab and an attention grab from Jodie Foster. I do say that if that was the case, it's pretty despicable. Um, but at the same time, if it is true and Molly's was reaching out 
to Jodie Foster to have her murder solved, have her body found. That is absolutely incredible. That is like trying to solve your own murder from beyond the grave. And I think that's what gets me is that is what appears to be the apparent story in the haunting aspect. As for Colleen Stan, um, I don't know much about grooming into submission or Stockholm Syndrome, but I will say that if you've got a looming threat over your head and you genuinely believe it, I think you're going to do as you're told. <laughs> and she was brainwashed and made to believe these things. So I'm not sure if that does come under Stockholm because as far as I'm aware, you have positive feelings towards your captor. Um, and we haven't actually heard anything of her saying, like really demonstrating that she had positive feelings towards Cameron. Um, she was very quick to leave, for example. So I think she was just living in fear of a threat looming over her head all the time that this company was going to harm her and her family. Probably more so that they were going to harm her family so she endured such agonising pain to protect them from any harm and that is bravery beyond anything any of us could ever imagine. Yeah, like a lot of the behaviours that they mention as like the reason for it, it's like, well, no, Cameron did that. Cameron came to the family. Cameron introduced her, himself as her boyfriend. Cameron posed. You know, she, had, she hasn't done anything, in my opinion, she hasn't done anything that would show positive response to her captors if anything it's more like Stockholm Syndrome in reverse he was yeah. giving her more freedoms because he was getting more confident because she was brainwashed yeah. or like a form of radicalization in reverse she's not been radicalized but she's been she's living in some form of fear yeah Well, listeners, you've heard our thoughts and opinions, and we'd be very, very eager to hear your thoughts and opinions. As always, though, do try and keep the um, comments respectful. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. And don't forget to check out our social networks. We are most active on Instagram and Facebook. On Instagram, we are the Shit Detectives Podcast. This is also the case for threads on Facebook. It's the same, but the I in shit is a semicolon. On TikTok, we are also the shit detectives. As always, our thoughts to the family. As always, our thoughts to the families. And please be respectful in the comments. Looking forward to our next episode. See you there. Bye. Bye.